Welcome back to Catholic Life Every Day, the podcast. Here we'll discuss tools and ideas that help parish leaders and parishioners live their Catholic faith daily. Every month we'll cover a variety of short topics across a broad range of products and services, all offered by diocesan. We'll explore topics related to community, communication, and connection, all guided by this year's liturgical calendar. Discover, transform, journey, and prepare. The topics are designed to help you best serve the people entrusted to you at your parish. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Catholic Life Every Day, the podcast. My name is John. And I'm Tommy. Hello, Tommy. How are you today? Good. How are you, John? Good to be with you again. (laughs) Great to have you back. Well, we're excited you're here, and thank you for listening, viewing our podcast. We are going to be talking to Dr. Timothy P. O'Malley about his new book, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. Now, you may or may not know that we all have been invited to participate in the National Eucharistic Revival sponsored by the bishops of the United States. The Eucharistic Revival is a three-year initiative that is centered around the Eucharist by bringing together not only clergy, religious, laity, parishes, and diocese leaders. And it's, it's divided into three years. It's a three-year segment. So each year we'll have the initiative will be strategically focused on different areas. So for example, year one, it will begin at the diocesan level. So for those of you that may have attended a Eucharistic Congress this year, I, for one, attended one, not only as a participant, but also as a company. We just recently attended the Eucharistic Congress of Atlanta. That was a great kickoff for the Atlanta Archdiocese to introduce the Eucharistic revival for this diocese. And again, this is a great invitation. First year will be focused on the U.S. bishops inviting the diocese. And uh, again, I hope that everyone gets a chance. If you haven't attended a Eucharistic Congress, Tommy, have you attended a Eucharistic Congress at all? Oh, yes. I've been to the one in Atlanta and it's it's amazing. I mean, seriously, you have thousand. What is it like 20,000 people that are there? I don't know how many. It's it a- seems like a lot. And maybe not that many, but there's quite a few people. And the procession is what I love. You get everybody dressed up in their own cultural get up and they're all walking through the streets and a huge procession of the Eucharist. Wonderful. Yes, it's an incredible celebration. And really, again, I've been a part of it for many years. This is my home diocese. So it's an incredible experience to see it come together in a two-day event. If you haven't been a part of one, hopefully joining one, if it hasn't happened yet. But then year two, it will then transition to a parish level in 2023. So if you think about it from a parish level, this will be all pastors will be inviting not only their parishioners and staff members. From what I've read in the Eucharistic Revival website, this will be focused on small groups, Eucharistic adoration, of course. That's something that even our own parish right now is doing. Many parishes are hopeful that many parishes are doing the Eucharistic adoration, but also an opportunity to explore the sacrifice of the Mass, which is, I think, it's an incredible experience for those of us that hopefully through the Eucharist, we get to experience the understanding and the true connection to Christ in that precious moment that we get to, to spend with Him. And then finally, the third year, and I say finally, I almost feel like the third year, I hope that by the third year, Tommy, we're going to be so into what we're supposed to be doing in this initiative that we're going to just want to continue on and deepen in our faith and connecting 
with others through the Eucharist, but the year three will be focused on the National Eucharistic Congress. So this will be celebrated in Indianapolis. It will follow a Eucharistic Congress format in 2024. Looking at some of the stats on this event, it is the first national Congress in 50 years, and it's projected 80,000 Catholics. That's a number. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, that's way more than the 20,000 that I think I totally misquoted. Well, he, well, you're not wrong. I think at some point, and maybe someone from the Archdiocese of Atlanta is here, they'll correct us. <laughs> They're going to be like, yeah, you gave really you know, big numbers. Yeah, yeah. yes. But I know at one point it was maybe 20,000. I don't know. But, uh, but, but yeah, 80,000. That's huge. 80,000. Together with all the Catholics around the world and... <laughs> Celebrate the Eucharist. Love it. I just, I'm looking forward to that. It gives me the goosebumps thinking about the expected attendance of that incredible event. Now, mark your calendars. There is a date set for this incredible event. It's July 17th through the 21st in 2024. So again, if you want to learn more about the Eucharistic Revival, please visit eucharisticrevival.org. And hopefully you can get, there's an incredible FAQ that they've made available through the website. So feel free to visit that and hopefully that'll address your questions. I'm hoping that we're just preaching to people that already know about it. But for those of you that don't know about it, again, this is a great opportunity to can learn about this incredible event. Now, Tommy, this is a special episode today. As not only we do, only we do we get to share with our listeners, viewers, what this great initiative is about and in the preparation that, of course, in many parishes probably are going through right now. But we also get to talk with Dr. Timothy O'Miley this afternoon. You excited? I am very excited. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Dr. Timothy. It is wonderful to have you here. Thank you for your book, which I have devoured over the past week. That could be very dangerous to devour. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 I've had some indigestion, but it's... That's I would true. imagine. So, That's yeah. true. Dr. Timothy O'Malley is a Catholic theologian, author, and teacher. He's a director of education at the McGraw Institute for Church Life. He is also the academic director for the Notre Dame Center of Liturgy. O'Malley also serves as an executive member of the Eucharistic Revival and a theological consultant for laity, marriage, family life, and youth with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So we're excited to discuss his new book from Ave Maria Press called Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life. Dr. O'Malley, welcome to Catholic Life Every Day. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to join our podcast and sharing this wonderful book. Just like Tommy said, I was sharing with him prior to us starting today that I'm the kind of reader that is, I'm a timed reader, 45 minutes, an hour, focus, come back to it later so I can really truly absorb it. But I got to tell you, after 45 minutes of reading, I didn't want to stop with your books. I wanted to continue on. So great writing, great content, and I'm looking forward to sharing this with our audience today through this podcast. So thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much. That means a lot. Now, Tommy, will you be so kind to lead us in prayer today? Yeah. Let's begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your life, your love, your peace that you give us every single day. Help us to just take a moment right now in your presence to invite you into our hearts, to our lives, to be transformed by the peace that you bring us. We thank you for the gift of the Eucharist that we have here with us in every single Catholic church in the world, for the ability to literally consume you, 
to be as close as possible to you. We thank you for all these gifts, for the gift of the church, for the gift of your life. We pray that you would help us in our different jobs, the different things that we do, to be good disciples, to be good communicators of your word. Inspire us with your Holy Spirit to reach all nations and all people. We ask all this in your name. Amen. 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 The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. That was beautiful. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't choke up halfway. I was leading a retreat once. I've been praying the rosary since I was like two. I grew up in a homeschool Catholic family and we prayed the rosary every day. And they're like, can you lead the rosary? I'm like, yeah, that's child play. And then I get halfway through the Hail Mary. And because I'm in front of a crowd of 300 people, I choke. And I'm like, I don't even remember what the Hail Mary is. So <laughs> it's funny. Praying in front of people is a weird experience. but It is a different experience. It's, I, it's humbling. And I think it shows a little bit of vulnerability on our part to open up our heart to others. So thank you for that, Tommy. I appreciate you. Now, Tim, as an executive member of the National Eucharistic Revival, is there anything that I miss, anything that you'd like to add with our, for our viewers, listeners today about this incredible initiative? Yeah, so I don't think you missed anything or got anything wrong which is great. That's good to know. But what, what I would note is I think one of the dilemmas, I think when you specifically think about the revival, is the danger of focusing simply on the 80,000 person event, right? So the whole thing is leading to that. And in fact, really the goal is a renewal of church life in the U.S. around the Eucharist, right? Not to make it a sort of bureaucratic renewal, but, you know, after COVID, after so much dealing with the scandals that have gone on in the church, it's an opportunity to really sort of remission ourselves. I mean, that's why it's called a revival, to remission ourselves and focus upon the deepest identity of the church, which isn't a bureaucracy. It's not a power game between clerics or lay folk. Rather, what, in, what the church is the mystery of love revealed on the cross. And so the hope is that after that event, there's actually a lot of creative, charismatic renewal that unfolds in the life of the church at all sorts of different levels because we focus upon the Eucharist rather than strategic planning alone or whatever. So that's uh, nothing you left out, but I think that's one of the hopes that the executive team has relative to the revival after the national event. Yeah, that speaks to me personally because we strategically plan ourselves to death, I think, sometimes in the Catholic Church. I've worked in parishes and you have meetings around stuff, you bring programs in. And at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff is good. But at the end of the day, it's like we have the Eucharist. We have Jesus speaking to us through the Eucharist. Sure, we should do programs and Bible studies and all these things. But really, and I love that you mentioned this in the beginning of the book, it's more than a program, this initiative by the USCCB. It's more than a program. It's more than an initiative, really. It's a way of life. It's a way of culture. It's a way of changing the entire environment in which we live in order to make it focused on the Eucharist, which is the source and summit of our faith. I love that. I concur. I'm glad that you love it, too. Because <laughs> otherwise, I would... I feel like, <laughs> you're like, why are you start to yeah, why are you interviewing us? Fall a little. It might spread right. apart just a bit. That's right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Great. Well, let's dive in to the book a little bit. So for those who have not seen the book, this is the, well, it's hard with the there dark. It is. There we it. go. There's the book. Please go and get it. It's excellent. It's a fairly easy read. I think I finished it in about four hours, which I really love. I mean, it's very 
the content is rich, but it's fairly easy to get through, which I enjoyed. But in in basically how the book is set up, so you have it set up with these four dimensions of Eucharistic culture. So I want to ask you, Tim, which one is your favorite? And can you expound on it a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So perhaps just for the listener, there are four sort of dimensions. When I think about a Eucharistic culture, what I'm thinking about is how somebody concretely lives out something they believe, practices and worldview and the whole thing, right? So if I'm establishing a family culture, there's certain things we do as a family and ways of life. And so I have four dimensions, I think, of a culture that I want to highlight that what I would say, you know, a parish is Eucharistic, right? If there's reverent worship, if there's an integral Eucharistic formation. In other words, it doesn't just stop once kids receive First Communion, but it continues throughout the totality of your life. Uh, that it's not a privatized event, right? This is not, okay, we celebrate the mass on Sundays for an hour and then immediately I leave the parking lot uh, in a race to defeat my neighbor as quickly as possible to get out of the parking lot. But it, it extends into the life of the family, into work, even into Eucharistic processions. And then lastly, it's marked by Eucharistic solidarity or uh, more profound communion with your neighbor, right? All your neighbors, right? The parishes, a neighborhood and not just a church. And so you've asked me to choose my favorite. It's somewhat difficult, but I think the first two, the reverence and the solidarity go so deeply together, right? Pope Benedict XVI once said, Pope Emeritus now, but once said that a Eucharist that does not result in the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. And so Eucharistic solidarity or friendship with the neighbor and the hungry and the thirsty is so closely linked to our reverence of Christ in the Eucharistic presence. And so I think those two go together as bookends and in essence, everything else flows from them, right? From the reception of reverence in reverent worship that leads into more profound love of the neighbor and then back again into to sort of more reverent worship. Yeah, I love this because I myself am kind of a closeted traditional Catholic, if you will, grew up in a very traditional family. My whole family goes to traditional Latin mass. I love the traditional Latin mass myself. It's probably my favorite form of the, of the liturgy, but my wife uh, does not like it as much in just in that she can't understand it very well. And so we go to Novus Ordo. And so I have my foot in both camps, but I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit. Cause I think in our culture right now, especially in the church, we're seeing kind of liturgy wars rise up if you will. And I know, I think I read that you were at one point, director of liturgy at Notre Dame, is that correct? No. So I am the academic director for a center for liturgy. Happily, I don't plan a liturgy at all. So okay, okay. nobody hates me except for when I write. <laughs> you don't get any of you don't get any of the mean emails. I don't. Uh, but, I get other mean emails, but correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. So could you talk about that a little bit about just where we're at as a culture in the church, I guess, around the liturgy, how there seems to be a lot of kind of friction going on and how I think what you mentioned in your book, and I think this is very good, is that it we need to get back to just reverence, you know, reverence of whatever liturgy you're doing. If you want to say you're a traditional mass person or if you're a Novus Ordo person or whatever you want to say, really the key here is the reverence part of how we are, how we are walking with God, really. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we are, first of all, the church has been in this sort of conflict over liturgy for really the last 35, 40, 50 years, well, 50 years now. And this conflict is 
in some sense, I've grown to, to see some respect for it because I think it's part of the reception of a council, right? If you look at after any council, there's a little bit of fighting and things will go back and forth and we'll see what things look like in about 250 years on this point, if the world still exists. But on the other hand, some of it is really quite mean-spirited, right? So what it becomes is camps and ideological camps, right? So um, that the reformed liturgy is intrinsically bad and leads to irreverence, which leads to immorality. That's where I get emails from because I'm a, uh, I, I suppose in many ways, I'm an uh, old-fashioned Vatican II Catholic of a sort, right? I, I don't I like polyphony and chants, pr preferably in the mass, but... You know, it, when push comes to shove, it's the reformed liturgy that's been the bread and butter of my life. And so it leads to either sort of a total rejection of that. Or it leads on the other end to sort of I've often found like folks who are more attracted to traditional things, that the reaction to, to, to certain generation is to dismiss them right away. They're Pharisees, they're rigorists, they don't really care about what's happening. I think what Pope Francis did in his most recent letter on liturgical formation was trying to get us back to basics on this, which is that something happens in liturgy that's real, right? It's real. Reality is at stake here. Lives are transformed. The Lord Jesus Christ offers himself and we offer ourselves back in return. We receive the body and blood of Christ. The priest is doing something that is significant for people. And so what I define reverence, not as this practice or that practice, although I think it involves stuff and matter. We have bodies and we worship God with bodies, not just, it involves like attending to the quality of our music. But it's really the bigger question is, does your parish celebrate the mass in such a way that people recognize that something very, very real and important is taking place there? Or does it feel like play acting or something like that? So that's sort of my definition of reverence, right? You're communion, communing with the living God. And does it look like you're communing with the living God is another way of thinking about it. Yeah, almost like, is there something different going on here? Like when you walk into a church and you attend mass, is it different from anything you could get anywhere else? We talk about the sacred or being sacred as being set apart. And I love how you talk about this in your book. You mentioned banality and the kerygma, that it's like, this can't just be commonplace. It can't just be like, I'm a Catholic, so I go and I know the prayers to say at this point, and I kneel here because I'm supposed to and stand here when I, but are we actually participating in this most important thing that we can do? And is it so reverent that you're almost in, you're taken outside of your, there's like an awe, there's a wonder. Can you speak to that a little bit about, especially that little, those couple paragraphs you have about banality and the kerygma? Yeah, I think one of the dilemmas is that I often have heard the major critique of liturgies, often as they're celebrated today, is that they're banal or they're kind of, well, it's sort of like cliche. It's a nice way of thinking about it, right? So you kind of expect the same things to happen. You know, the homily unfolds. You're like, okay, I know what the priest is going to say. Yep, he said the thing I thought he was going to say. The, the hymns have the same sort of images to it. It sometimes sounds, to be honest, some of the music that's sung. Uh, it sounds a little more like ditties from a commercial or something like that. And it has a kind of finality to it. People get bored at it. Th these are all things that happen. Uh, I think part of restoring the banality, uh, to make an unbanal liturgy, something that doesn't suffer from banality, is returning to the kerygma, right? What, who's there? What's at stake, right? And this is what I think Pope Francis did genius in his apostolic letter on liturgical formation he just released. 
It's Christ who's active, right? It's Christ who's at work. Do we proclaim and really believe that something is at stake in worship? And this can happen in, in really a significant way. Like when I think about my life, uh, I've attended a lot of parishes. I've attended, I've attended the Basilica at Notre Dame, which has what one might call a higher liturgy. There's lots of music and chant and polyphony. My local church is architecturally quite high, but musically not. And there I've experienced some of the great gifts of my life as my son received his first communion and they took it very, very seriously. And I, I grew up in a parish in Florida that was having visited it recently was architecturally abysmal and musically was, you know, straight out of the seventies. And yet it was there that I first loved, learned to love that Jesus Christ was there in my life. These things matter. And they were all places very different, by the way, they're very different places. You would not recognize them. And yet they treat it as very, very real that the Lord Jesus Christ comes and dwells among us. So do we know that? Do we, are we aware of that? And it, the more we know that, the, the more that those practices will become alive with the reality, whether we're talking about the 1962 Missal uh, celebrated or a Reformed liturgy celebrated from the, the Second Vatican Council. It's that reality that's at stake. I love that you mentioned the architecture. There's a parish near us I call the Ponderosa Church where it literally looks like a buffet. I mean, you walk in and it's like, I think this was a Ponderosa at one point. But again, you walk in and you receive God. So it's like, there's real stuff happening here. And I love that with the charisma that I think maybe this is just me. I don't know if some of our listeners feel this way too, but the charisma comes up, you know, if you teach in your parish or if you do CCD or if you do RCIA or whatever and you teach stuff and it's like, oh, the charisma. Yeah, we all know the charisma. But I think the reality is if we still sin, we haven't fully grasped the charisma yet. So it's this the charisma, even though it's a simple gospel, it's Jesus loves you. Every single one of us hasn't brought that fully into our hearts. And I think that's what's most exciting about this huge push in the United States is like it's all about getting back to the basics. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. How do we fall more in love with Jesus? Because none of us are doing it well. And, you know, um, yeah, I, wonderful. I love that section in your book, especially on the banality and the charisma, because it's just like, let's get back to basics. We haven't grasped them fully yet. Let's do it. Your second point here, the second dimension is this integral formation that doesn't reduce the Eucharist to catechesis, um, just to doctrine, right? But it's fully living out the faith. And immediately I thought of Matthew 19, where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, Moses allowed divorce, what do you say? And he particularly doesn't get caught in the controversy, but he reminds them of who they are. Here's who you are as a person. Here's how you're meant to love. So it, it almost like, it's saying the doctrine, it's saying that it's the catechesis, but it's applying it to their life. Could you speak to that a little bit, to that second dimension you have? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I often hear that it, perhaps it's just the fact that I've worked a lot in the church this stage and that if people only knew X, Y, or Z, then everything would change, right? So if people only knew, for example, the doctrines of real presence and transubstantiation, which was actually the topic of my first book, with Ave Maria Press on Real Presence, then everyone would come back to Mass. But I know this to be untrue, not because the doctrines aren't true, they indeed are very true, but rather because that's not what it means to be a human being, right? So the way I think about it is like this, like how many people have been told by their doctor, for example, that exercise is a good idea? 
they know it. They've Googled it. They've found it. They're regularly told that you should exercise for X amount of time per day. But because we all know the problem is that then we don't do it, right? Or uh, otherwise doctors would be, you know, no longer exhorting us to perpetually to exercise. And so the problem is that catechesis, strictly speaking, it, it is catechesis, right? There's a doctrine. But how do you actually live the consequences of that doctrine in your life? And that means you need an integral formation, right? You need, we learn not just through being told things, but through images, through memory, through the imagination, through immersion into the scriptures. We have to think about things though, too. Learning takes time. Uh, I always, uh, the worst teachers will say, I'll introduce something and then say, hey, what do you think? And people are like, I don't know, because you just told me that thing. I might need 35 seconds to chill and, and understand it. And so it needs time for meditation. It needs time for practice too, or taking up a whole sort of form of life so that you live it out and your will is transformed in the process. So an integral Eucharistic formation isn't simply doctrinal instruction, though it is doctrinal instruction, but it's, it is involvement so that it shapes all that it means to be human, our senses, our memory, our imagination, our loves. What do we love? There's a lot of people who could perhaps understand the doctrine of transubstantiation, but still hate the neighbor or, or commit adultery against one's spouse. So how do we become a Eucharistic people? It's more than just telling people stuff. Ironic, because I'm spending a lot of time telling people stuff here today. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but we love it. Yeah, I, th I, I think back to my high school days where, again, grew up in homeschool family. I was the guy who could quote the Baltimore Catechism to you. But I wouldn't say I was in love with Jesus until my probably second year, first or second year of high school. I went to a Steubenville retreat and experienced the love of God through the Eucharist. And then it was like, okay, all of these doctrines now are coming alive. I'm a big John Paul II guy, and I think this was his brilliance, is that he took 2,000 years of, of church teaching where we have all this deductive reasoning. You know, you have the greats like Augustine and Aquinas who are giving deductive approaches to theology. But then you have John Paul II come on the scene and say, let's go to the experience of the person. And through that, explain this doctrine. And I think that's what you're saying here in this chapter, which is so wonderful, is that and it also makes it easier to share. So I want to ask you, what is an experience you've had of the Eucharist that you like to share with our listeners that has kind of brought the doctrine home? It's made it real in your heart. Would you be willing to share an experience like that with us? Yeah, but it's really boring. And it's actually, <laughs> mostly the re well, this is what's remarkable, I think, about this is it's the slow transformation of your life that weekly Eucharistic attendance does, right? I mean, yeah. I'm I'm a very cradle Catholic. I have been involved. I have had no remarkable transformation in my entire life. I grew up in an excellent youth group that sort of sustained me. I went to college and I prayed, right? There were sort of moments of transformation, but they were so tiny and, and sort of gradual. And what really sustains me though, like experientially is like, it's hard to be, for example, a dad and a teacher and, a husband. I'm often bad at all of them. I get annoyed at my children. I certainly am not always the best spouse. Although, I mean, I won't detail this, but if you want to have my wife on, she'll be happy to articulate. The <laughs> and as a professor, sometimes I'm impatient and I don't actually give my will over to my students. And so what I find is that by attending mass as often as possible, I become in receiving Jesus and, and offering myself in return and learning this sort of Eucharistic form of life, 
I am more capable of love, right? I, 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 the heart is opened to this gift and it's, it, it's not known at once, right? If you compare Sunday to Sunday or Monday to Wednesday, it's not clear, but the clarity is over the course of my whole life. I am the kind of person I am because I love the presence of our Lord in the Eucharist and I love the sacrifice of the mass. So, I mean, it's not exciting. That's probably not like, um, that's why I haven't been asked to give a talk at a Steubenville conference because it would be one of the more your, boring ones your, that I've ever Your conversion isn't huge enough, yeah. <laughs> it's like I woke up every day and I went, I prayed. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. That's living it. Uh, you know, and this connects too to the um, this idea you have in the book of like memory, imagine, imagination, and experience. What are some, because I think what happens is we are in such a busy world that we just go day to day. And oftentimes, at least I know I do this, is I forget to experience God in my life in an intentional way. So I can like, I know God is working and I'll do my prayers and I know all this stuff is going on, but it's rare that I'll stop through the day and just realize the presence of God with me. So what would be some tips and tricks that you have for our listeners to take moments throughout the day, maybe to get back to this memory, this imagination and this experience? Like how can they really think about their conversion moments in their life where God is walking with them and then use that to share that with others. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to do, well, first of all, a lot of it, it means we, it, I, again, this is ironic, so I hope that it's not too much of a irony, is a lot of this is gonna require us to tune out just a bit from the digital world. So it means, I hope you're enjoying this podcast. I'm not telling you to stop right now. Please keep listening <laughs> to this podcast and use any and continue to use diocesan services in all ways, shape, and forms. But it actually requires us to take time away. Our attention gets increasingly fragmented in an age in which we receive sort of perpetual and speedy notifications about everything. So it's time away. It's going outside, for example, and spending time in the created order, what, what's referred to as sort of a natural contemplation. It's spending time away. So it takes time. It takes attention. I think that's a really essential thing. So it means putting your phone away. It means not walking around and talking to someone all the time. It means not perpetually texting. But then, right, there are practices that the church has often thought about around this. Did my doctoral work at a Jesuit institution where... I spent a lot of time thinking through is Ignatius of Loyola's very sort of careful attention to times of the day where you stop and you pay attention to where divine consolation is in your life. That, for example, in this moment, like if I get off this and I, I think to myself, Tim, like what a great opportunity it was to have this conversation with friends and colleagues, right? This is a moment of gratitude. It's taking a step back and it's learning this Eucharistic shape of life. But I also reflect on moments of desolation or sin, places where I was impatient and where I struggled. And I offer that at mass. I pray for that, right, at mass. And so I think Ignatius of Loyola had a kind of um, early modern, as it turns out, strategy for helping us live a Eucharistic life through really meditation and reflection on where we stand at every moment before the Lord. But again, that's going to mean that we're going to have to slow down and we're going to have to uh, maybe stare just a little less at screens in our lives. Mm -hmm. So you heard it here first, stay on the podcast, but directly after the podcast, get off and go and pray. 
and listen to no other podcast ever again, right? Is that what I... That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll pay you later. Thanks. Tim, I want to follow up some of the questions that some parishes that I've talked to about this interview with you today. This is, of course, directed to our parish, especially being that this book, when I reading this book was just incredible for me from the perspective that I had. I love books that have self-reflection and that you're able to go back and you read a passage, you read a chapter, and then you give us practical self-examination tips on what, how to think about your church, think about your parish. What are you doing certain things that, that are helping with this focus of the National Eucharistic Revival? So my question to you from a parish perspective, for anyone going to Ave Maria Press today to purchase your book, what are some of the things that you think parishes can take away? Are there any retreats? I know with the McGrath Institute for Church Live, I'm sure that there's opportunities through the site that we can share with our parishes today that they can go to, maybe download material for the book that will support not only sharing the book with everyone, but additional material that they can use. Yes. So because the book is uh, taking place over the course of the revival, which has been well expressed as a multi-year process, we're developing resources as we go along. So, you know, we already have, first of all, Avi Maria Press realized that they really want parishes to engage in this process and the cost, the books are very beautifully designed, but they make them then a little bit more expensive than a lot of parishes can have for everyone. So they're designing a less expensive version under $3 so that parishes can buy them in larger quantities. They wanted me to articulate that today. Uh, and they're going to be creating a resource along with that, which includes videos of discussion for me to talk through some of these things with folks. And that should be out um, soonish. I should know as soon as I record the videos, which I hope to do soon. But then also the McGrath Institute is part of it. I've dedicated to creating resources around it. So already we have a retreat that a parish could do themselves to reflect on Eucharistic culture, but also Eucharistic reverence. And we have a kind of assessment guide that we created for the parish where they can say, well, actually, are we reverent? So it has very concrete things to reflect on. Is there enough silence? And so we have a way to help you reflect on this. Uh, I'm actually finishing today a resource that's like a small group resource that helped parishes over seven weeks break apart the Eucharistic prayer, like you would a Bible study, but around the Eucharistic prayer. We're gonna do some courses on family life and work. And so we'll have a variety of resources that will be available linked to this because we want it to be a renewal of the parish uh, through the reading and discernment of the book. But all of that is like particular, right? So pa no parish is the same. And so what sort of renewal does your parish need, right? It's not a program, as I said at the beginning. How can we as a parish be renewed by the Eucharist by reflecting on the Eucharistic mystery? So we'll have those coming out actually over the next year and a half to two years. Fantastic. And I think for all of our listeners, viewers, I know diocesan, we're hopeful to prepare some material that will be reinforced as National Eucharistic Revival. So stay tuned, hopefully for diocesan customers and non-diocesan customers, we want to invite you to give us a call and see what we can do to support. And I know working directly with Tim, we'll be able to provide some additional content through some of our products and services offered, one being My Parish App, Evangelist, which is something that we hope to develop here in the coming weeks with the help of Tim and his team. So thank you, Tim. Oh yeah, thank you. I do wanna mention as well that website for McGrath Institute, for those who haven't heard of McGrath Institute for Church Life before, it's a phenomenal resource. That's mm -hmm. mcgrath.nd.edu. 
So go and check them out. They have courses that you can go and view right now, but it sounds like a lot of those resources will be hosted on that website as well. Is that correct? That's correct. That's our magical place. Awesome. <laughs> I want to just uh, address this last dimension that you have in the book, the promotion of Eucharistic solidarity. So could you give us just like a, a working definition of solidarity, what you mean by that, and then explain that final uh, dimension that you have in the book? Yeah. So solidarity is not, as I say in the book, the big feeling of like, I steal you, bro. Right. Uh, oh man. Yeah. That's really rough. Oh, well, <laughs> now it's time to go on with my life. Solidarity, as John Paul II noted, is your good is my good. Your suffering is my suffering. And I share that in common with you. It is that it's really what the church means by the common good. Solidarity is the proper virtue. And so it's an intrinsically kind of Eucharistic virtue, right? Because to receive Christ's body and blood is, as Augustine notes, to become what we received, a communion of love. And that communion of love is not just for the Catholics gathered there. The ca Our goal is not to create a sort of sanctified space. We, the holy, versus you, the miserable, right? It's <laughs> the neighborhood. It's space. It's time. It's history that's to experience this Eucharistic mystery. So the joys and hopes the sufferings of our neighbors, they're ours. The way I think about this in the parish, is, it's got to start actually pretty close to home. Do you even know who's in your parish? Do you know their name? Do you know anything about them? I think COVID revealed how little we knew about each other. I mean, we went digital. You had no idea what was going on. But do you know your neighbor? Uh, but then second, do you know your neighborhood? The parish is not a building. It's a geographic boundary where the space of evangelization is to take place in that little boundary. And so the joys and hopes of that boundary matter. Your suffering neighbors, the neighbors suffering from sickness, those who are suffering from racism or poverty, we have a commitment to live out this Eucharistic life there, right? So the parish has to go out from it, from itself, right? If the Eucharistic revival creates parishes that adore Christ in the blessed sacrament, but then escape from the world, it missed the whole point. Right. The point is to actually create a culture, a Eucharistic culture in the world. And that's solidarity. That's what I mean by Eucharistic solidarity. Yeah, that's even clear just in the liturgy. At the end of the liturgy, it's funny. I always use this in confirmation class where it's like sometimes the kid's favorite part is when, when they said the mass has ended, go in peace. And it's all oh, the mass is over. We can go get donuts or do whatever now. But the idea is you've just received God, go and share him with your community, with your world, with your people. So it's yep. like you said, and I think you've mentioned this in the book, like if you're leaving mass and all of a sudden drag racing to get home or honking at your, at your people to get out of the way, it's okay. <laughs> you missed something. So yeah, I, I love that promotion of Eucharistic solidarity. You had a quote by John Paul II I want to share just to inspire people about, about this book. It says, in the light of faith, solidarity seeks to go beyond itself to take on the specifically Christian dimension of total gratuity, forgiveness, and reconciliation. One's neighbor is then not only a human being with his or her own rights and a fundamental equality with everyone else, but becomes the living image of God the Father, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and placed under the permanent action of the Holy Spirit. When I read that quote in your book, I was just like, oh, this is glory, right? Because it's true. Our neighbor is not just, we can think of everyone as equal, right? As human beings, but it goes beyond that. They're a living image of God the Father. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that is, I often hear, so in my book, Real Presence that I did for Abby Maria, I often hear a clash 
said like, okay, it's not about adoring Christ in the blessed sacrament. It's about recognizing Christ in the poor. I always think this is a very silly dichotomy that's presented, right? Of course, it is adoring the hidden Christ in the Eucharist that brings us to bend the knee before the presence of Christ in the neighbor, right? What do we see when we look at the blessed sacrament? We see nothing, right? You see a Simon Bay, a Catholic philosopher, an almost Catholic philosopher, I should say. She was on her way when she died. She, she noted that the thing about the Eucharist is that it's the most nothing form of bread you could imagine, right? It's, it's it, at least in the Roman, right? It's nothing. It's, it looks like totally empty and there's no force and violence to it. And yet there we say that like total love dwells, right? It's the opposite of force, right? God doesn't say if I was God and I was to become present among you, as I always tell my students, you would know it, right? There would be fireworks. I would underline it. I would ensure you bend the knee to me. That's what I would want if I was God. That's not how God works. God gives us the freedom to respond in love. And so in the neighbor, when we see the neighbor who is the living image of God, right? Of God, the father, the living image, there's a worshipful dimension of our care for this neighbor, right? It's, it's not, oh, okay, uh, there's ethics and then there's mass. No, like this is the whole thing. To adore the hidden Christ means that you learn to adore the hidden Christ in the neighbor. And to me, this is integral to Catholic life. It's integral to the life of the saints. You never meet a saint that's like, I love the Eucharist, but I hate the poor right? Or, or vice versa. Like, I love the poor, but man, the Eucharist is a waste of my time. That you don't meet these people. There's a reason you have your Francis of Assisi's and, and now your, your Sir Dorothy Day's who are potentially being canonized. They get this. They understand the union between the two acts. And the more that we keep them together, the more evangelizing the church will be. Amen. John, do you have any questions from anybody on Zoom so far? I do. I have a question related to resources. What books or resources would Dr. Tim recommend favorites to foster a deeper love of the Eucharist in our own lives? Oh, man, that's a really hard question because there's a lot of books. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm I think for me, the book that I would recommend outside of my own book is one of the, it's not a book, it's Benedict XVI's Apostolic Exhortation on the Eucharist, Sacramentum Caritatis. Like everything he wrote, it's just very clear. And it really is an introduction, I think, into the beauty of the Eucharist. It's very short relative to longer writings of John Paul II and Francis, right? So they're, they're, they both tend to go longer. And the USCCB has a version of it, right? The Eucharist in the life of the church today, I think it was called Eucharist, I forget its name, but the USCCB has one too. And that's even shorter. It's 18 pages. And so I, I recommend starting there and then start to make friends with some of the people they quote, right? Read an Augustine, read a Thomas, read other books that are mentioned, read the lies of the saints on the Eucharist. These are, you'll get the quotes, you'll get the references there, and then you'll be able to go play with them. And you can access that uh, for free on the Vatican website. Again, the name of that is, can you say the name of that again? Sacramentum. Caritatis or the sacrament of charity. I did Latin for two years, but it clearly was not nearly enough. So, <laughs> um, yeah, sacrament of charity. Look that up. You can get that for free on the Vatican website. So, I would like to end with uh, with this question, which is: So, we had a, a parish mission at our parish already, and I know there's a big push. In fact, there's a, a large group of priests that have been tasked with preaching for this three-year initiative 
Could you give some idea of where a parish can go to get that started? Is there a website they go to for to get a parish mission going in their parish? That is the USCCB's Eucharistic Revival website. So you can okay. find out. So they just go there and sign up. Yep. Okay, perfect. Great. Anything else you want to share with us before we end? No, this is great. I'm very happy. I look forward to seeing revival in the church and through every parish. And I look forward to seeing the resources that Diocesan put together around this revival. So thanks for having me and taking time to read my book and talk to me. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome work, Tommy. Thank you so much. And Tim, thank you so much for coming on our show and for sharing your time and wisdom with our viewers today and listeners. Now, the book, again, is Becoming Eucharistic People, The Hope and Promise of Parish Life, available on Alvin Maria Press. Dr. Timothy O'Malley, Director of Education at the McGraw Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Again, Tim, thanks for joining us again, and God bless you and everything that you're doing today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank God you. God bless everybody. Thanks for joining another great episode of The Catholic Life Every Day, the podcast. You can find our episodes on our landing page at diocesan.com slash podcast. There you will find our streaming handles for Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and bookmark diocesan.com slash podcast to check in often. Thanks for joining us at Catholic Life Every Day, the podcast. Please visit diocesan.com slash podcast to listen to today's recording anytime you'd like. And be sure to bookmark this page to check back often. We have some fantastic topics and speakers joining us this season, and you won't want to miss that. Catholic Life Every Day, the podcast, is produced by Diocesan. For more information, please visit diocesan.com slash podcast. And don't forget to find and like us on social media at facebook.com slash diocesan publications. On behalf of the diocesan family, have a wonderful day and may God bless you all.